0: Hello and welcome to Innovation In Equality, a podcast bringing inequities in tech to the forefront through candid conversations with founders, investors, and stakeholders. I'm Ray Leach, the founding CEO of Jumpstart, a full-service venture capital and economic development firm helping to unlock the full potential of entrepreneurship. In this episode, we'll hear from Lauren Washington the co-founder of Funder, a platform that automates, diversifies, and democratizes seed funding. Prior to her current venture, Lauren co-founded Black Women Talk Tech, a conference focused on Black female founders. Thanks for joining us today, Lauren. How are you?
1: I'm doing pretty well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to jump into this conversation. It's uh, long overdue and really excited to talk about it with you, Ron.
2: Great. So I know when we last talked, You were really excited about Funder. Um, So what I would like for you to do is just walk us through your journey and how it led you to this moment to create Funder.
1: Yeah. So I have been an entrepreneur for about seven years now, and I started my first company back in 2014, which was called Keep Up. And we essentially automated social media listening I won $250,000 through the 43 North competition that's up in Buffalo, New York, and that sort of kicked off my journey to becoming a tech entrepreneur. Little did I know that I knew pretty much nothing about how to do that and was sort of learning it as I went along. But one of the biggest barriers that I had was around funding. Um, So even though we won $250,000 and that should be a signal to most investors that uh, we are a company that's worth investing in. Um, I really struggled after that to raise follow-on funding. Um, and uh, after that, I was able to meet these other two incredible women, Asosa egodero and Regina Gwynn. And they were working on their own businesses as well. And we got together and said... Uh, you know, let's just help each other at this point. You know, you're going in the same direction that I'm going in. We're having the same challenges. Let's get together and talk and see if there's ways we can support each other. And that is what ended up turning into Black Women Talk Tech, which has now grown to be the largest conference uh, and membership organization for Black women tech founders And then through that journey, talking to hundreds of women, talking to uh, investors on the other side as well, just understanding that there were barriers uh, on both sides. And my story was very common, unfortunately, and that these women were coming up against uh, various issues that uh, stopped them from really scaling their businesses. And so I think for me, uh, Seeing that and then having my experience as well uh, really made me lead to funder um, and really wanting to change the overall landscape of the industry. I think for me, I, it, I realized it wasn't an issue that I was having. It was a systemic issue that we were all having.
2: I want to unpack something you just stated at the moment, barriers. We really want to talk through what some of those barriers are. As you mentioned, it wasn't just isolated to your experience.
1: Absolutely. So some of the barriers that I faced personally and that I think a lot of people are facing, um, one is just access. So I think that's the, the top issue right now is how do you get access to the people who have the ability to write checks to fund your business it's not as easy as it sounds. Um, I think it's an industry that is built on warm introductions. It's an industry that's really built on who you know and how you get introduced. And unfortunately, if you are a black entrepreneur, you don't have access to that. You know, I didn't grow up with a family of uh, very rich uncles who can write my first friends and family check. Uh, I didn't grow up with a family that was connected to this industry in any way. So for most Black people who don't have uh, wealth, generational wealth, Um, it's very difficult to sort of break into this. And so I think that's number one. Number two is just the education. So again, if you don't have that community who has been through this before and can pull you up, how are you going to learn how to get through that yourself, (laughs) right? So I think for me, when I came in and I said, I didn't know what I was doing, I truly didn't understand that there was a a language that you had to follow. And there were, um, a, there's a certain way that you had to approach pitching and you had to approach funding. Um, and that took me a really long time to learn. And I think when you come in at that disadvantage, even if you get your foot in the door, if you're not able to present yourself in the correct way, uh, it's a very small community. And you are unfortunately, um, I wouldn't say, blacklisted from it, but I, the it, word gets around quickly <laughs> if you if you come in and you don't know what you're doing and there's already a high barrier for black founders in order to um, pitch their companies and get funding.
2: You know I think that's very informative for a lot of people who sometimes take for granted the access they have that not everyone else has. And as we talk through how do we create equitable access, we need to ask the question how exactly did these barriers come to exist in the first place? Um, So what's your insights on that?
1: I think they came from the same way that pretty much every industry is built at this point. You know, it's most of business is built on relationships. You know, I think that I've learned that over time, that uh, the relationships that I have built through the various networks I have come back and help me over and over again. Um, And so from that perspective, I, I understand. But we are now at a point where we have access to so much different technology that can change um, opportunities for people, right? So the whole point of the internet, the whole point of tech is to democratize things for everyone. And it's done that in a lot of different ways, but it has not necessarily done that within the funding industry. And I think a, a large part of it is because there's no real incentive to do it, right? So even if you are only choosing Uh, white entrepreneurs, the likelihood of you getting an ROI on that is still fairly high. There's no incentive for you to have to go out and work with Black entrepreneurs um, unless you feel like they're going to, um, you know, bring in some outsized uh, ROI or return on investment that the ones that you're already investing in have. And so I think it's it's a tough way to sort of talk about um, how opportunity makes sense. And there are a lot of ways where you can bring opportunity to the table so that you can create a return on investment in areas that other people haven't actually invested in yet. But it's going to be a long conversation to get there because they, the way that this has been working for decades um, still continues to work to this day.
2: And I think that's pretty sobering, but a very honest assessment of where we are. And when you mention that, two thoughts came to my mind. The first, I think of Arlen Hamilton and how Arlen spoke about amplifying the talent and power of underestimated founders and trying to reshape the way we start these difficult conversations. So from your perspective, Lauren, why is this framework necessary in talking about tech inequality?
1: Yes. And I love Arlen Hamilton. I love how she came out here and is completely disrupting the conversation and shifting it into a more positive framework. So the whole reason she started um, saying underestimated instead of underrepresented, it was because there are incredible founders out here. You know, they're doing incredible work. The The problem is that when they get in front of uh, these different investors, unfortunately, there are a lot of biases that come into play that overshadow that incredible work that they're doing, right? And so I think really shifting that and putting the spotlight on the founders and how great they are and showing that it's not their issue and it's not their it's not their fault that they're not getting funding um, is so incredibly important. I think it's it's a really at this point in time it's really important to shift that conversation because we're creating all of these different funds and we're creating all of these different um, points of access now uh, after the the social justice conversations over the summer. And we really need to make sure that um, the the spotlight is on those who created the structure to begin with and not those who are victims of it.
2: No, I think that's very, very important framing you know, understanding why are we here. And I think as we talk about this underestimated concept first, one of the things I want to talk about are success stories we are seeing among Black founders when people choose to stop underestimating them. So, Lauren, I know you've been nationwide, different stories, different friends, different connections. Just want to hear from you some success stories that people should be aware of
1: yeah i think the last couple of weeks there have been a couple of really exciting success stories that we've seen in the news so calendly is one they just raised funding at a i believe a three billion dollar valuation uh city block health is another uh black female founder raised money at a billion dollar valuation and I, i think calendly in particular, is really interesting as a case study, because he has been outspoken about the fact that he was unable to raise money when he first started. I think his his first round, he went out and raised about $300,000 and struggled to get that and couldn't bring in more funding. And now, fast forward a few years later, and he's a $3 billion company. Um, And so are the processes that we have in place really working to identify Uh, the the topes of the world, you know, the the calendlies of the world. And I don't think that they are. And I think um, hopefully these uh, successes that we're seeing will bring people's eyes and and open them up to the fact that um, there are incredible Black founders out there, because the more that we see that, the more likelihood that investing will come for those who are just getting started.
2: Everyone dreams of being the unicorn. And you find black founders who are the unicorns, but are not getting the initial love that a unicorn deserves. And we've got to ask why. Just as a curiosity question, everybody assumes that you have to be somebody who's got a super tech background to even become successful at creating a tech business. So I want to hear your from you, you know, talking about your journey and the journeys of others that, you know, examples of that actually wasn't the case.
1: Absolutely. I think that's me in a nutshell. You know, I didn't come from a tech background. Uh, I am not a coder. I have tried to code a few times and it's it's best left to the professionals, I would say. I'm, I'm not, not great at it and I don't particularly enjoy it. Um, but I don't think that should uh, cut me out of the industry as a whole. So I will say that's true for at least a lot of Black women, that they are non-technical founders uh, and they struggle to find technical founders as well. So I think when we talk about uh, what a leader looks like, it's not only in reference to raising funding. It's about who do you want to follow down this crazy world of and this crazy road of entrepreneurship uh, and if you, as a society, don't see leaders who um, of color, then why would you jump behind them, right? Why would you think that that person's going to be successful if they haven't been in the past? Um, and so I think that's a that's a huge barrier that we're having right now. But I don't think that it's insurmountable, and we're seeing so many new technologies that are coming out where you can use AI to create. Apps. You, know, you can build apps really easily with something like Bubble, um, and you can really figure out how to get started and get to market without needing uh, that tech background. It absolutely helps to have it, because I think if your core um, purpose of your company is technology, you should understand it and you should be able to speak it in some way. Uh, but I don't think that that needs to be the only factor that comes in in terms of leadership, because entrepreneurship, even in the tech space, is so much more than just coding.
2: I know one wise person once taught me, I will take the person who understands the market opportunity and how to take advantage of it than somebody who just understands the tech alone. Exactly. We know there are more underestimated entrepreneurs who, if they were given the support, would be success stories. But we also know that they're not getting the support they need. So from your perspective, What's needed to generate more success stories so that there are more Laurens of the world, for example?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think funding is one. And that's the, the the whole crux of this conversation is that if you are not giving the same access or opportunity to funding, How can you be asked to compete against other people who are right? So, for example, looking at black women, they bring on average about thirty thousand dollars in funding into their businesses. And I think that's actually jumped this year to maybe around one hundred thousand dollars. But compare that to the average company overall that brings in over a million dollars of funding. How can you even compare that? They're working with a war chest that is significantly bigger than yours, where they can go out and hire the best people and they can go out and uh, pay their bills (laughs) and pay themselves and not worry about struggling financially. So I think the funding piece is is so incredibly important. And early funding is so important as well, because I mentioned uh, the uh, whole idea around generational wealth and how we can't always turn to friends and family to bring in that first initial funding to get started. It's even more important to go downstream in terms of investing and making sure that you are investing at those very early stages because they are um, they don't have the same advantages that other people do and then i think there's there's more to that though right there's so much more around um understanding the industry and and getting mentorship and and advisors within your company who can sort of guide you through in the right way so i will say for myself in my first company i struggled through that fundraising process not only because i didn't understand it but because I didn't have people around me who understood it and were willing to take me under their wing and show me how to do it. (laughs) Right. And so I think there is a a significant need for that. But I want to be careful around that, because I think oftentimes what happens within the VC community is that a lot of uh, investors open up their doors for mentorship and that never leads to funding, right? Uh, Whereas oftentimes it's open up to mentorship and funding for some of our counterparts. So uh, that alone is not going to change things, but it is an important piece of the puzzle.
2: As you mentioned that, Lauren, I thought of what one good advisor told me many years ago. You can get a mentor, you can get a sponsor, or you can get a champion. And from what I'm gathering, but I want to make sure that you would agree with the sentiment, what we really need are people champion. We don't necessarily just need mentoring.
1: Exactly. That's so right. So I think mentoring is great. Um, I have taken advantage of it and benefited from it for many years. And I try to pass that down as well. But you need someone who's going to when they're at the table, bring you to the table as well. Right? You need someone who's going to go out on a limb and vouch for you in situations when you're not there and pull you up. And that's not necessarily mentorship. Um, I think that's a step beyond it, uh, where you are using and putting your own reputation on the line for to help somebody else. And we need a lot more of that in entrepreneurship, not only from the VC world, but uh, from other entrepreneurs as well, um, that when I have made it, I can pull you in as
2: well. And I think that's very important. What are we doing to give back so the next generation has an easier pathway? Absolutely. So as many entrepreneur support organizations, venture firms, and a lot of governments are really trying to say, how do we advance diversity, equity, and inclusion in this space? There are a lot of things that can be said about current responses. So one of the first things I want to talk to you about is going, What are some things you're seeing that have promise and why, from your perspective, do they have promise?
1: I'm excited in general. I'll start with the fact that I'm really excited that we're even having these conversations. I think for the last five or six years of being an entrepreneur, uh, I was fighting to have these conversations and bring this to the forefront and have been told over and over again, that no, tech is a meritocracy, that the best people rise to the top. and if you're not getting funding, it's it's your fault <laughs> essentially there we don't have an issue. And so the fact that the conversation shifted so drastically uh, last summer, it was there was a lot that came out of it emotions wise, but uh, for me, i was I felt like in the overall net, it was positive. It was a positive conversation that we're having. I think it's just the beginning, though. Um, I think there are some really great initiatives that are happening in terms of funding. So you see SoftBank's Opportunity Fund. Um, There were a lot of commitments made from Bank of America, Nike, Google. I mean, you can name it. Um, And I, I think that's just the start, though. I think we need to make sure that It's not just a a one and done uh, conversation, and that once this money runs out, we feel like uh, we're we're all equal now. (laughs) That that it we're we're all fixed from the last hundreds of years of of inequality, Um, and you know I really need to uh, I really hope that we move past um, as well these separate but equal funds. So I think it's important to earmark funds at this moment so that you're making sure that funding is getting to uh, these Black entrepreneurs. But I also want to be able to take part in the larger funding opportunities as well. So yes, the opportunity fund for SoftBank is $100 uh, million, but... Their other funds are are billions of dollars, right? And so in terms of of access and equality, we need to take that extra step to understand um, how are we changing our process overall so that we're not uh, overlooking these underestimated founders and that they do have access and equal opportunity to get funding and the larger pot as well.
2: I think that's so important here. And I think it speaks to that point about a lot of these places, venture funds, where do you go for your deal flow? And we traditionally talk about, I go to a university or certain trusted advisors. And a question I've often asked, and I'm curious to your thoughts, what are you doing for the on-ramps to make more accessible people to get into the systems to begin with? i so curious to your thoughts on that.
1: Absolutely. And I think it, it comes back to the fact that this industry works mostly on warm introductions. <laughs> you know, I think you have to Uh, break that down. And there are a lot of really great funds that are doing this. So uh, City Light Ventures is one. um, I believe first round takes anyone who uh, comes through their uh, website backstage as well. Um, And so I think Rethinking that idea that you have to have a warm introduction and then that warm introduction boosts you to the top of the list um, is, is something that we really need to change. And I, I think there's there are great examples of it. As I, as I just mentioned, there's a number of, of uh, people who are doing it, but we still need to recognize that it's not about um, the number of people there is not a pipeline issue. There's literally hundreds, if not thousands of entrepreneurs um, who are building incredible businesses. It's about access. It's about how they're able to get access and get a seat at that table. Um, and we need to start by removing this idea of warm introductions and creating other ways and other processes to to get to that table.
2: How much do you understand Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube. I remember talking with a leader of a particular VC firm who went, Well, you know, if people were really, really building great companies, they wouldn't migrate to other cities to try to raise capital. And My experience from working with enough of my friends from Morehouse or Spelman, they've had to move to go to places where they would get a shot to be considered. Curious to your thoughts on that perspective.
1: Absolutely. And we see that as well in our data. So uh, last year, Black Women Talk Tech put out a research report, and, and we've been seeing this over the last couple of years that were not concentrated in Silicon Valley. And the reason is when we moved to Silicon Valley, that hasn't been beneficial for us. (laughs) So we go to Silicon Valley and then we're not getting funded and we're in this incredibly expensive place where um, doors are not opening for us. Why would we want to stay there, right? Also, we have to think a little bit about the lifestyle um, and and choices that we make as founders. And I think this idea around um, giving up everything, sleeping on a couch of your friends in, in Silicon Valley and, uh, you know, foregoing um, all other responsibilities to, to build this business out doesn't resonate with Black women. And sometimes it can't because they have families, because they're the breadwinners, because there are a, a million other pieces that come into it. Um, and I think... When we only myopically look at a founder and their commitment to their business through that one lens, um, it unfortunately rules out all these other people who are incredibly scrappy, who are have built something from nothing and have the ability to do it, but they're doing it their own way. That makes sense for them. So I think it's a larger conversation that we need to have, uh, whether it's around your city or lifestyle, that it's not a one size fits all uh, prospect, and and often we see that uh, those who are able to jump all in and be full time entrepreneurs in these very expensive cities are have the privilege to do so. They have the financial backing and the financial net to do that, um, and and oftentimes most. Black people, and particularly Black women, just
2: don't have that. Oh, what? You mean the um, people on the downside, the generational wealth gap, don't have the wealth to be able to afford to take off for a few years and see if something can work out? Who knew? (laughs) Exactly. Um, (laughs) Exactly. who knew? I'm like, so I know as many places, such as Cleveland, for example, have asked, what can we as VCs do to try to make Cleveland a destination spot for Black entrepreneurial talent? My first question for you is, Where are some good cities that are really doing good and where Black entrepreneurs tend to be thriving better than other places in this country?
1: Yeah, I think that they're doing really well in Atlanta. I think Miami is starting to come up as a place for for Black entrepreneurs. We did our Black Men Talk Tech uh, conference down there. And I think the reason why is because their support network there is so strong. And as an entrepreneur, you need a lot of support, you know, you need a lot of people around you who are uh, building you up and and bringing you through uh, this incredibly difficult journey uh, from not only investors uh, and not just having investors there within the ecosystem, but investors who are willing to write those checks for black people um, is incredibly important. Having other entrepreneurs there who you can have access to and you can talk to and and grow and learn from Um, having uh, various foundations. So for example, in Miami, they have the Knight Foundation that um, has great programming around uh, tech entrepreneurship accelerators. So there needs to be a really strong ecosystem. And I've lived in both as an entrepreneur. I've lived places currently in Austin that has a very strong ecosystem for founders. And that experience is significantly different from living somewhere else that doesn't and how quickly you can move and grow uh, when you do have access and when you do have that support.
2: Right. So I think it's probably one key point I'm taking away. Capital is absolutely necessary, but it's more than just capital.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think uh, on right next to capital is having other entrepreneurs with you on that journey. Um, I, I would not underestimate that. <laughs> I think having other people who understand what you're going through, who can you can talk to about these very specific issues uh, of leadership, and when you're you're hitting you know a wall, how do you move past it? That is so incredibly important, and if you don't have uh, not only a large number of of founders around you, but um, access to them and the ability to to easily uh, create networks and create groups uh, that can be a significant barrier.
2: And then I think another thing that's very important is understanding what do we mean when we say the black community? Because um, I'm not sure about you, but I'm going there's no one spokesperson for the black community because we're a diverse group of people um, with different needs For example, I could think of how there's specific needs that black men have in entrepreneurship that black women, it's a different conversation, especially when you talk about black mothers. So I'm just curious to your thoughts on what do you hope people who are trying to support black entrepreneurs really understand around concepts of intersectionality?
1: Absolutely. And and that was the main reason why we started Black Women Talk Tech to begin with was because we didn't feel like we saw our story reflected anywhere within the conversation. And that intersectionality piece is so important. And I can tell you so many times when I have gone into a pitch with investors and you're not only getting the the race side of, uh, of biases, but then you're also getting the gender side of biases, right? So people are looking at you um, in a very specific lens that um, you have to use different tactics to overcome. So even though I think Black men absolutely uh, have a funding gap as well. When you look at the numbers, there's still probably about 10 times more funding going to Black men than Black women, right? Uh, when you're looking at the uh, how Black women need to take care of their families, Um, and their their home responsibilities on top of being a founder, that is incredibly different. And so um, really understanding that there there are different issues that come to the table and it's not a one size fit all DEI solution to this Um, and really listening to what those issues are is going to be important if we want to make any kind of significant change.
2: Right. And I think of significant change. You know, I've been in enough places where every VCs or groups talk about, well, how can we help black entrepreneurs? But they talk about in the lens of accomplishing their personal goals. And they ne- I haven't seen a lot of people ask the question, what exactly are some different community goals that the entrepreneurs are trying to help actually have? So um, I know this is something that's been a very popular soapbox for you and I to both get on on numerous occasions. So I'm going to ask you to go that soapbox again <laughs> and really walk through, OK, things people need to keep in mind about what are some goals different people in our community have around entrepreneurship and why we have them.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I love that question. So I I think the main goal, at least anecdotally from when I talk to founders, is building wealth. And it's not building wealth just for themselves. Obviously, they're interested in doing that and and having that financial security for them and their family and, and for generations to come. But it's building wealth for the community uh, at large. And I think when you bring wealth into the community and there's a number of people who have become successful, there's power in that, right? There's power to make change um, when you have the wealth and you have the ability to write your own checks. Uh, and, and particularly if you have been a founder, I think this is there's a very different um, lens that you bring as a founder turned investor versus someone who just becomes an investor, Um, you understand the the real issues and and hardships around that. And you're able to sort of uh, better pick out uh, companies and founders that that might be able to navigate those to a win. And so um, and that's actually been proven by research that entrepreneurs make incredible investors because they've been through it before and they know what to look out for. Um, And so when you have a number of these entrepreneurs, a lot of them have the goal of of taking this wealth and not only investing, but putting it back into the community in a number of different ways. Um, There's a lot of people um, I know now who are talking about opportunity zones and investing in those. That's a very particular black issue. Right. And uh, the reason why uh, people want to do that is to sort of shift their neighborhoods that they grew up in and, uh, and take them and uh, take them back from the gentrification that's happening. So there's a lot of different reasons, but I would say wealth in and of itself for people is a, a conduit to uh, changing the community, changing um, opportunities for people, uh, and really being able to uh, bring those to the table that they haven't had in the past.
2: I remember talking with somebody else about this and he went, and this is why I'm not trying to work with just any investor if I need an investor at all. And I think that's something nice to hear from you, Lauren, as an operator, you know, um, to to kind of elaborate on that a little more.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think I've heard this a lot from Black founders is that there is sometimes a hesitancy to even raise money. And I think we have to understand, again, that everyone's goals are different I think when you have wealth that you may not have seen before, that is at the at your fingertips and available and it's it's there to to grab, um, it, it's hard to then give that away, right? So the, the whole idea and the whole concept of venture capital from a founder's perspective is that you have to give away a significant amount of your company, aka a significant amount of your wealth um, in order to get that funding. It's an exchange for it, right? And yes, of course, you the, the whole idea is that you get a lot of money in your business. You may have 10% or less of that business, but you're having a smaller amount of a large pie. But I think when you talk to Black people who have not had any amount of any pie, <laughs> um, that's a hard concept to grasp, right, to, to give that up. Um, And to give ownership up of something when we have not had significant ownership uh, within our community for such a long time is is a really tough sell for a lot of Black entrepreneurs. Um, And I think we really need to think that through as well as we're talking about changing uh, venture capital and understanding that those are some of the pieces that come uh, and some of the the history that comes with uh, raising capital.
2: Really great points, Lauren. Another question I have to come up and ask now, because um, I really think this is important. I want to go back to something you said, separate but equal funding and programming. And it's something a lot of entrepreneurs I've seen are going, well, why are you trying to pigeonhole me into X, Y, and Z? And a lot of people come back with the, well, we're really trying to be helpful, be helpful. And they talk about their intent. But can you walk us through why the intent isn't enough?
1: Yeah, I think the, the intent is great, and I, I think it's a first step, right? I think acknowledging the issue and putting uh, different programs or strategies or plans into place to uh, work on that issue is is really important. But unfortunately, I think I had mentioned before that often these separate funds are nowhere near the the actual funds uh, that other people have access to. And so when you're thinking about not only initial check size, right, so if you have a fund of $5 million uh, that's set aside, how many entrepreneurs or how many startups can you actually fund with that amount of money, right? So the check size not only goes down, but then the follow on funding is also an issue as well. So yes, this is great for that first initial round, but will there be more funding later? And I think a lot of people do have um, that that foresight to to make sure that they're doing well in this first fund so that they can build it out in the future. But I don't know that everyone is, is really thinking that way, that it's not just about that first initial check, it's about every round thereafter. And then the other issue is that a lot of these funds have much higher barriers to get into. (laughs) And so I I can say this from personal experience that I have pitched these firms before and they had special DEI funds, but I had to go through uh, the MBWE process, right? So I had to get certified as a a Black or women entrepreneur through the government. That is a long process. (laughs) I mean, that could take months, if not years to do. And so I not only have a smaller bucket that I'm going after, but now I have to jump through a lot more hoops in order to get there uh, for a smaller amount of money. And so I I think the intent is good. But if you're thinking about the overall process, how are you making this equal if we have to work 10 times harder to get a, a smaller amount of money?
2: Right, and I think now is an important time for uh, those who want to be good allies to be advised. There's a whole history of Jim Crow, separate but allegedly equal. Hint: it was never equal, and this reinforces and reminds us of that trauma. And I Mm -hmm. think it's very important that it has to get reminded here. So, as we're wrapping up this interview, three basic questions I have left. First, we're watching a lot of people are hiring for more DEI support, and there's no doubt it's noble. I like to see more portfolio managers of color. I'd like to see more accountability officers of color. But why is simply just hiring more people of color not sufficient to address these issues?
1: I think hiring is great. I think I want to see more people of color in these positions as well. (laughs) You know, I think um, I'm tired of going to meetings and I'm the only black face in the room, uh, particularly when there's funding or some other partnership or opportunity on the line. Uh, But I think it's you can't hire to change the system. Right. It goes back to the same conversation we were having before, that the people who um, are victims of oppression and victims of that system cannot be the ones to change it. And so if you bring somebody in and they don't have sufficient power within not only that organization, but the, the system as a whole, how can any significant change be made? Right. So I, I think, unfortunately, what happens is uh, Sometimes people come in and they're the face, right? It's this performative aspect of, uh, of DEI. Uh, But what kind of power are they given? If you have a chief diversity officer in your company, does that person have a budget? Does that person have a team? Uh, You know, does that person sit in board meetings? Do they have true power within the organization? And oftentimes I've seen that they don't. You'd be surprised how many don't have budgets and don't have teams for these very large corporations. Um, And so it's not just about putting somebody as a figurehead. It's about giving them true power to change. And I, I truly believe that that has to come from the top. It's not just about hiring one or two people. It's about making sure that your DEI goals um, are part of your company goals um, and that they are uh, looked at in the same way that if we don't meet them, there will be uh, consequences to it. <laughs> and, and I don't think that we've taken that approach yet. Uh, hopefully we'll we'll get there soon. Uh, and But I, I do think there needs to be a shift in that thought that it's not just about diversity, It's it's about that second piece. It's about inclusion and inclusion into uh, power.
2: Thank you so much for that. So we'll be remiss without giving some entrepreneurs some advice before we go. So I look from your perspective, somebody who's been there, done that and got the T-shirt and decided to do it again. Um, What are the risks of VC investment? When does VC make sense and when is it not worth it?
1: Mm hmm. It's a great question. So some of the risks around VC investment are ones that I had mentioned a little earlier. You are giving up a significant amount of your company. And these are now people who you're going to be working with for possibly 10 years or more. <laughs> so thinking that through, um, understanding that it's not you, it's not just that you get a million dollars and you get to walk away with it, Um, there are responsibilities that come with that money and there are significant expectations that come with that money. So once you bring venture capital into your business, you have to understand that they are looking for a return. That's the the main reason why people invest is to get a return on their money. And so they're expecting you to grow significantly, grow fast and get them a return ideally of 10X. So are you ready to put in that time and effort over the next five to ten years to do that? because it's it's a lifestyle at that point. It's not it's a lifestyle choice. it's It's not just that you you get this money and you you get to ride and do whatever you want. You truly are shifting your entire life around meeting those expectations. Um, and and with that said, I think there are companies that don't fit that. and I don't I don't even think that every scalable company needs to raise money either right you have to understand whether that works for you and that's the the best way to get there i know a a ton of women who have raised a lot of money through grants and there's not that responsibility when it comes to grants um or who've raised money through pitch competitions or um even people who brought in loans uh, for their business because they really wanted to build it their way and hold on to a significant amount of equity i think there's also a number of businesses that um most likely are not right for venture capital. So you'll likely see uh, you know, uh, brick and mortar retail stores, hospitality, um, a, a lot of these uh, businesses that don't necessarily, as I like to say, make money in their sleep. If you have to make money because you're there physically, um, and you, you can't just turn it on and, and constantly churn and, and make money while you're asleep, then that's probably not right for venture capital. So I would think a little bit about that as well, that, um, again, the, the the world is small, the industry is small, know the, the type of people that you are um, coming to talk to when you're looking for investment, and know that you are um, in the right category for that investment as well.
2: Great wisdom. And I think it echoes what the Kauffman Foundation explained that by and large, for the majority of business owners, venture capital is irrelevant. So make sure when you bring it to your business, it's because it makes sense. It's necessary to help you grow and you're ready to meet the obligations that come with it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that last piece is so important that venture capital is not the goal. And I think oftentimes, particularly in the Black community, we look at raising money as the goal of your business. It is not, it it follows success and it fuels your business, right? So don't look at raising a million dollars as a milestone for you to check off. You should be looking at raising that million dollars as a way to build a company that already has legs and has already proven itself to get to that next level. Um, and if you don't do it, that doesn't mean that you're a failure. It doesn't mean your business is is not worthwhile. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even mean that it couldn't be a billion dollar business. Um, it just means that it may not be right for funding at that moment and for the amount
2: of funding that you're looking for. So I guess, Lauren, from you, you want to brag about my business a billion dollars, not I owe a VC a billion dollars would be the right. Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's the right mindset. Okay, great. So on that note, any funnel thoughts and insights or resources you want to share with our listening audience today?
1: I think the the final thoughts are uh, to to get into this world if you want to. You know, I think there is a lot of hesitation around becoming an entrepreneur, and I I understand that it's not for everybody. And particularly, like I said, this VC-backed entrepreneurship is not for everybody, uh, but if it is something that you want to do, look towards these incredible examples recently of Calendly and City Block and uh, Squire and a, a number of these uh, individuals who are able to not only grow sustainable, incredible, scalable businesses, but then get the VC backing to to take them to that next level. I'm really excited to see. Um, some IPOs come out in the next couple of years. And uh, I think if you want to get in to this world, there's no better time to do it than right now. <laughs> so I would just suggest people to uh, you know, find your community, find like-minded people, um, get started. If this is something you want to do because now is your moment.
0: I really enjoyed hearing today's conversation with Lauren and Ron. They are part of a growing group of voices changing the conversations and conventions in tech entrepreneurship and venture capital. I'm Ray Leach and I'd like to thank you for listening. Don't miss the next episode of Innovation Inequality when Jumpstart's Chief Inclusion and Outreach Officer, Lamont Mackley, joins news anchor Russ Mitchell for a conversation about how an inclusive tech community is tied to regional and community growth. Consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would, please help us out with a great rating and a quick review. Innovation Inequality is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Dave Douglas, and co-producer, Vicki McDonald.